You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. We've been in a series on the book of Acts, just a brief series, and entitled What's Next? And this is the end. So this is the end of what's next. So the question is, what is next after next? That's the, I don't, I don't know, but I, I can't wait to see what happens next week. It's going to be pretty exciting. So uh, we, we find ourselves at the back um, end of the book of Acts. Um, the author of the book of Acts is also the author of the Gospel of Luke. Um, the book of Acts is the fifth book in your New Testament. And we're in the 28th chapter. And I'm just going to read three verses from that. And then we're going to bounce over to Paul's last letter. So this is the 28th chapter, uh, the 16th verse and the 30th and 31st verse. Uh, Luke is writing. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Paul lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to them, proclaiming to them the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And what is believed to be his last letter, his last letter from prison, he, uh, at all, he writes to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. And in the fourth chapter is where we find ourselves, and he's kind of summing up the end of his charge. And there, he has a clear, deep affection for Timothy. But listen to these words from Paul in that, in that jail. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message. Be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Carry out your ministry fully. As for me, I'm already being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which... The Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark, for he is useful. So bring him with, with you, for he is useful in my ministry I have set Tychicus to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak which I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him back for his deeds. You also must beware of him, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. 
The Lord stood by me and gave me strength so that through me the message might fully be proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from all, every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we're interested in only hearing your voice this morning. And uh, hearing is hard for us. We can be deaf. So we pray you'd open up our ears. And we'd like to see what you're doing. And seeing can be tough. We're often blind. So open up our eyes. And we'd like you to work transformation in us. But our hearts can be hard, Lord. So we pray that you'd soften our hearts. We pray that your spirit would be here. That you would open up your word. Um, Anything that isn't yours would be like smoke, chaff, dust, quickly blown away. But your word, Lord, that you would press it deep onto our hearts, that our hearts might be with your heartbeat. Amen. The first time I was in jail, I suppose I should explain that. The first time I was in jail, I was there, uh, I was at at jail, the Maricopa County Jail, to, to learn how to work the jail system, how to go in and visit people. So it was me and about 20 people. And the person who was running this thing said, on your application, if you've ever been convicted of an offense, make sure you write every single offense down. I kid you not, a bunch of hands went up. And the question was, how do I make sure I I know where my offenses are? And I'm thinking, how many offenses do you have that you need to go find somewhere to verify? What would impress me about this group of people, they wanted to go back into a place they were so they could bring hope. I was really impressed with that. Now, here was one of my favorite things she said. She said, if for any reason there's an uprising in a jail and the prisoners take it over, we will go to no extraordinary lengths to rescue you. I thought, hmm, okay, all right. A lot of interesting truth there. All right, okay. So when you go into, when you go into the jail, if you ever have the privilege to go into the Maricopa County Jail, um, what you'll do, you'll you know, turn in all your stuff, can't have anything in your pockets, and then you get onto this elevator that has no buttons. But there is a camera, they're watching you. And so they take you to whatever floor they want to take you. And, and honestly, when I walked, there was no signage. I'm like, I'm there to visit someone. And I'm like, so where do I go? And I walked in and found a room. And sat. It's just an intriguing sort of thing. My luck, privilege, gratitude is I've not been on the other side of a jail. Paul has. Paul's been on the other side of prison. Um, that's been his life. And it's, it's interesting why that has happened. Initially, believe it or not, initially this particular imprisonment began to protect him um, from a threat on his life. People wanted to assassinate him. But at a certain point, he appeals to Caesar, which as a Roman citizen means he can go to Rome and have Caesar adjudicate his case. But before he even gets there, in chapter 26 of Acts, there's this incredible proclamation he gives to two royals, two people with great power of the gospel. It's just stunning his boldness of telling the gospel. And then in 27 and 28, we watch this crazy ship ride. If you want to hear a great ending to stories, watch this ship ride that Paul is on. And the end, we end with this thing where Paul is in, in a place, he can live by himself, but he has a, a Roman soldier attached to him, right, with chains. And he has to bear his own expense. Now, this may come as a shock to you. There are countries today that if you're a prisoner in jail, your family has to bring food for you. That's the way it works. So 
I don't, I don't think we feed our people well enough in prisons and jails. I don't think we show ourselves to be the people we should be by the way we treat inmates. That, that's just my opinion. You're welcome to differ with me. But it's stunning to me that there would be countries where I actually have to bring food to make sure that my family member in prison or jail is going to have something to eat. Pretty, pretty wild. Paul has a very different perspective about prison, uh, one that I think is disorienting. Because he sees prison as an opportunity. He's not like loving it. He's not like, yeah, I'm in prison. But, but he, he does see the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. He has an opportunity to go to court to tell people in court who are atheists about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, that takes a different shift. Right? I think today a lot of American Christians would see, see persecution as merely um, persecution as opposed to opportunity. And Paul has this kind of interesting way of just taking it and, and understanding the reality for what it is. Um, he understands that, um, well, he understands that he has this incredible opportunity. What stuns me about Paul is that he ends his life well. It is one of my goals. I know I'm older than most of you, but I'm not near the finish line, as far as I know, right? I'm not near the finish line, and I want to finish well. And here's the thing about finishing well, it doesn't just happen. It just doesn't happen. I would like, by the time either my wife or I dies, for my wife to have an amazingly emotionally mature husband. But let me tell you, with emotional maturity, it doesn't just happen. If you want to finish well, it takes motivation. It takes intentionality. It takes work to finish well. And, but Paul really has the right, I think. I'm not, I don't blanch at his words when he says, as for me, I'm poured out as a libation. That would be like you're, you're, at, you're at a temple somewhere, like in the Jewish temple, and you would be pouring out wine just as a gift, a sacrifice that you're giving to God. I'm, I'm being poured out as a sacrificial gift to God. And the time my departure has come, he knows he's within weeks or months that he's not going to make it through this thing. And I fought the good fight, and that fight is probably much more about an Olympic contest, not like a boxing match, but like really struggling in some competition he's been in, maybe like a decathlon sort of thing. Um, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Wow. Now he says a stunning thing, from now on there's reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. Now, Paul, if you read the rest of 2 Timothy, you wouldn't be saying he gets it because of what he's done. He gets it because of what Jesus has done. But his fidelity to that gospel, his way of responding to the gospel is certainly important. But he doesn't just stop there like, I'm so excited. He goes on to say, but not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. That, that, that laurel wreath that these Olympians would have received, not a golden crown, but this laurel wreath wreath around the head, that's reserved for all of us as we just press on to respond to what God has done to us. Like, yeah, this is the, this is the race I want to write. This is the fight I want to win. I want to keep the faith. And I don't take that as a foregone conclusion. It takes motivation. It takes intentionality. What, what I like about Paul, that he says all that, and then he also says, do your best to come to me soon. So he's not like this hermit, this guy who's just got it all together. No, he still cares about people. And he's heartbroken because one of his friends just deserted him. Several others he sent off this very places, but he, he wants this beloved child of the faith to come and visit him. And, 
And he has some tasks for him. Hey, bring that cloak. This is probably a very woolen sort of garment that's going to help him during winter to stay warm, right? And bring, bring the books, probably scrolls. Bring the parchments. You know, something that he can have something to do, maybe to write and certainly to read. So there's something powerful. And in the midst of all this, he's also encouraging Timothy. He's not set on himself. He's not curved in on himself. He's like encouraging Timothy, so what do you do now? Some warnings that go in it. Paul is going to die well. How do you want to die? Most Americans will answer that question very simply. Fast and not notice it. Christians of ages ago would be horrified by the mere idea of dying fast and not knowing it. They would want time. Why? They would want time to make sure they're reconciled to family members, to friends, to people around them, to God. They would want to make time to just make sure that everything is good between people. It's really a Western American sort of thing that we want death to be painless, quick, and done. Right? I mean, we all, we all agree with Woody Allen. I don't have any, anything wrong with death. I just don't want to be there when it comes. Right? So we, that's, that's really what we're wanting. We just, we don't want, but the reality is we are all destined to die. The final statement about, a doc, about us that a doctor will make is dead. How do you want to die? That's an interesting question. How do you want to die? That's really framed by how do you want to live. But it's a remembrance of the fact that our living has an end. Uh, Psalm 90, I think it's verse 12, says these nice little words to us. Teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. It's interesting. Americans would rather be sick than sinners. And Americans are more afraid of, of death than God. Why? Because Americans are atheists, by and large. I mean, that's why. Right? The mere idea that I'm not merely sick, but I'm a sinner, that says something bad about me. To, in my mind, it actually says something quite good about me. I'm glad to be a sinner. I'm glad to have a knowledge of who I am, because I know that there's a hope for me, and I know there's a better way for me to have to live. So for me, to hear I'm a sinner... I actually take as the beginning of good news. So I'm interested in knowing the fact that I'm a sinner. I don't take it to beat the crap out of myself. I take it to go, oh, that's, boy, my hand goes up. Yep, that's me. And, and I'm, I, I, I care about death, but I care about the one I'm going to face after death. That's important to me. Um, we may not like judgment as Americans, but we actually do like judgment as Americans. I, I'm not going to remember this guy's last name right, but his name's Ed. Ed is what is known as a cupper, C-U-P-P-E-R. He is a master taster of coffee. He will say to you, I could be blindfolded, you could hand me a cup of coffee from Guatemala, and I could tell you not only that's from Guatemala, but I can tell you from what mountain, what elevation, and what part of the country. I wonder how much of that is branding, personally. But he's really good at what he can do. I mean, he can do it. And we, right? And who likes coffee in this room? How many of you like coffee? Who likes bad coffee? Okay, great. So we really care. We care about judgment. Judgment is really important to us. We're glad there are people like him. Like, I wouldn't be good at that. He said he and a friend once walked into a room, 300 cups of coffee, and his friend goes, there's one in here that's fermented bad. There's one in here that's fermented. 
His friend walks up to a table, kind of looks around, tastes three different ones. He goes, it's this one. I mean, talk about olfactory glands on overload. You know, there's a nose that really, you would think my nose could do that, but it can't, <laughs> right? So, I mean, it's amazing that these people can do that. We care about judgment. And we, we, care, about, we care about it in some interesting ways. I don't know if you've ever, have we any, um, any Packers fans in this room? Okay, any uh, Seahawks fans in this room? Okay, a couple of you all. So uh, how many of you remember, how many remember September 12th, September 14th, 2012? Oh, right, (laughs) Flail Mary, Flail Mary it's called. So Russell Wilson, eight seconds left to go, makes his throw to Golden Tate, and I'm I'm blanking on on who the defender is. The defender catches it with two hands, Golden Tate barely has a hand on it, but Golden Tate has just done something beforehand. He's pushed one of the defenders away. The problem that night was all of the regular referees have been locked out by the NFL owners. And so the people who are refing are substitute refs. And the guy in charge of refing this game normally refs high school and junior college football and makes a, one of the worst calls imaginable just in terms of competence. It is a bad call. And so the um, Packers, who are winning 12 to 7, lose 14 to 7 because the refs incorrectly give the ball. They should have called a pass interference, what immediately would have invalidated the catch, and then made a bad call on the catch itself. We care about judgment. <laughs> we, we care about judgment. Here's the key the key is this the key is who's the judge? What criteria are they judging on, and and who set that criteria? Robert Jensen, a favorite theologian of mine, uh, says, you know, Jesus died, and, and the amazing thing about Jesus is, right, God raises him from the dead. And that takes on certain meaning, but it would take on very different meaning if Hitler had risen from the dead, or if Joseph Stalin had risen from the dead, right? Resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It's like, I mean, he's the one guy you go, well, it kind of makes sense while he rises from the dead. Right? Here's what makes no sense is why he comes back. You know, I would say, well, screw you people. You're done. You killed me, right? I mean, I'm, I'm alive, but he comes back. But not only does he come back, he's the guy who's in charge of judgment. Now, I never want to take Jesus um, lightly or for granted. But for me to hear that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead, I go, okay, great. See, if I say I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm I'm obligated not only to believe it, but to live into it. If I believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, which I do, I'm obligated to live a new life, a different life, a way to engage life. And, and I want to respond to that love, right? You've, I think you've heard this. When we play chess with God, we never get to play with the white piece. We're always the black piece. We have the honor of playing with the black or the brown pieces. God always plays with the white pieces. We're always responding to God's moves. We can never say to God first, oh, I love you. We're always saying, I love you too. Oh, and I love you. I love you also. But it's not merely words. It's a way we live a life. It's a way that we go, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. 
And that doesn't just happen. It takes motivation. It takes intentionality. It takes grace. Grace from stuff. God forgives us from stuff. Grace to stuff. God gives us grace to live our lives, pours his Holy Spirit upon us. And we're trying to move in a certain direction. That's who we're trying to become. So I don't know how you want to die. But I think how you want to die gets, gets impacted by what you believe have happens after that, who you're going to face. And I think how you want to die impacts the way you want to live. How do you want to live? And you're going to do it imperfectly. Right? So this week when you screw up, go, Tom told me I'd screw it up. I'm doing great. That's exactly what he told me I'd do. That's right. You're going to screw up. And the grace of God is we can come back to him and go, I, I screwed up. But I really want to move, keep moving towards you. So it's a lot of life of screwing up and moving in the right direction. And Paul makes some pretty powerful statements. He's telling Timothy, look, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living of the dead and the dead, and in view of his appearing and kingdom. Right? I love to watch Jesus. When you read the Gospels, don't just listen to what Jesus says. Listen to what he says. Don't just listen to what he says. Watch him. Watch him and go, who are you? Watch with a sense of like, what? So in John 9, John 9, he takes this blind guy aside, and he makes mud, and he puts it on the guy's eyes, and he has a wash. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that Jesus is echoing what happens in Genesis 2, where God takes mud and does something pretty wonderful with it. And this guy can start seeing. Well, the religious leaders are like, well, who did this? I don't know. And then he finds out a little later who it was, right? He was blind, like he didn't know who was. That makes sense, right? So he finds out who did this, and he tells them, and they won't believe. It's really, the story is a proof that most of us are blind. It's our very nature, we're blind. I have an amazing ability to be blind, to be deaf, to be hard-hearted. But Jesus does something, and what's interesting is when this guy's rejected by the religious people, he can see and understand who Jesus is. Rejected people sometimes can understand Jesus better than people who are at the top. People who suffer can get a grasp on who Jesus is. Something happens in that revelatory interaction of like, oh. Because at the end of the Gospel of John, what is Jesus? Rejected. That's what I call a crucifixion. I think that's a rejection. It's the, it's the death of the one who's created these people. But within that whole crucifixion, we realize that Jesus is actually judging the judgers. And that's what's going on. That's, who are you going to face? Who's the judge? How do you want to die? How do you want to live? It, once we understand the ending, it begins to make sense of what do we do in the, in the story. And so he says this to Timothy. I solemnly urge you proclaim the message. What's the message? Jesus. I mean, Jesus in all of his fullness. The one who lived, who died, who's risen, who reigns on high. Proclaim the message. Be persistent. Whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. It doesn't matter if it's raining, if it's snowing. People don't like you. Be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience and teaching. 
at a little earlier in this, he's uh, said to them, just in case you listen to that, he, he said, but God's teacher um, must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to ever, everyone, correcting opponents with gentleness. So he's already set forth a what does this look like? Correcting opponents with gentleness, who knows, God may perhaps grant that they will turn around and come to the truth. So it's not like I'm just becoming really nasty, in your face, yelling at someone. It's I'm just persistent in the way I live and talk, and I hopefully, in some way, by the grace of God, exude Jesus. And, and hopefully, that, if that's something you want, that, that God would do that in you. But there's this persistence that's called for. And then he tells us uh, the hard news. Let's say you start doing it. You can't judge your success, though it's an important data point, by what's happening back at you. Because the reality is people want, will have itching ears. He says the time will come. I'm going, when has that time not been? <laughs> the time will come when people have itching ears and find teachers suited to themselves. Who doesn't want to hear what they want to hear? Everyone wants to hear what they want to hear. There's this fascinating story. In 2012, a woman named Doreen Virtue was the best-selling author of New Age material. She and her husband owned 50 acres in Hawaii. Her works have been translated into 38 languages. 2012. 2017, she's driving on Hawaii. She's listening to some Scottish preacher, Alistair Bagg, on this particular text, people having itching ears, and she is blown away by this text. And then she starts sitting, getting to know God, and she reads in Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy 18, somewhere around 12 or something around there, just that you're not supposed to engage in the sort of material she's engaging in. And she's just like, God, I'm so sorry. And she repents. She disavows all of her work. If you go to her website today, she says, don't read my books. She, her publisher disowned her. Her publisher used to fly her first class wherever. New Age people ridicule her. And for her, it's like, it's not true. And, and that there is a doctrine, a dogma to new ageness as all things have dogma. We have to have happy thoughts and say happy things because that creates the reality that we live in. That's new ageness. I'm like, you gave up what? Because she understood what was true. Or perhaps the truth encountered her because the truth is a person. And she was encountered by this person and went, oh my God, it's God. And this is the way I need to move. 50 acres in Hawaii? 38 languages of books? Best, the best-selling author? And that's someone who has met Jesus in a profound way. People are going to want what they, they want to hear. It tells you that what you and I say is not enough. We have to be people who pray. People whom. We think we care, we love, we just like, God, I, I can't do it. You've got to do something. Would you, would you speak in the midst of this? Would you make yourself known? I'm stunned at the end of Paul's life that he says, at my first no defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. Oof. Can't imagine that. Oof. Then he says this. And it should sound familiar. May it not be counted against them. Who's that sound like? Jesus on the cross who says, 
Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Something has happened in Paul's whole spirit, because I don't think that comes easily. I think that comes with a life walking with Jesus, that that could become organic out of someone's body. And then he's able to go, but the Lord still stood with me. And he had this opportunity to speak to all these Gentiles about Jesus. And he makes this comment, I was a save from the lion's mouth. In case you're thinking of like gladiator movies, that stuff didn't exist. They weren't yet, yet feeding Christians to lions. So it's more of a metaphor that he's saying. He sees this great opportunity. So he lives this life that, that Timothy gets to see. And this is a favorite verse of mine in Proverbs. Many proclaim themselves loyal, but who can find one worthy of trust? Many proclaim themselves loyal, but who can find one worthy of trust? The righteous walk in integrity. Happy are the children who follow after them. Ooh, the impact, the life of a father like Paul on the life of a person like Timothy. You can have that impact. You don't have to get to my age. You can have that impact tomorrow. You can begin to think through your life. What do you believe? Therefore, what does that mean for your life? How will you live your life? How do you want to die? What do you want to look like? How do you want to finish well? That doesn't just happen. Let's go back to the emotional maturity thing. I know people in their 80s who are children. My guess is some of you people know old people who are children too. They lack any sense of maturity. Doesn't just happen. You want to be mature? You're going to have to work at it. It's a lifelong exciting, delightful, lifelong challenge. So what do you believe? How do you want to live your life? How do you want to die? Who is it you get to face? Now, I'd love to take Jensen's nice little phrase, right? You know, it'd be different if, if Stalin had risen from the dead. It'd be different if Stalin were the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. There's no one I want to face more, and I don't take it for granted. I want to be faithful. I'm going to keep working at being faithful. I appreciate Paul's words. I appreciate Paul's life. And I appreciate that we have this letter. There's a message to tell. So it's not merely how you live your life. He's giving some criteria to this. There's something that you can't keep to yourself. You shouldn't keep to yourself. Like a Doreen Virtue goes, don't read my work. Each of us has the ability to speak into lives that others of us will never be able to speak into. You are related to people who would never listen to this, whatever this is. They would never listen to this, but they'd listen to you. And that's true for each of us in this room. You have, you have a sense of who the God of the universe is, the one who made you, created you, redeemed you, who sustains you now, who's perfecting your life. I don't know about you, there are lots of things I love to tell people about. My wife's incredible cooking, how gorgeous my wife is, her smile could kill me, things like that. I'm happy to tell people. So Jesus, and my wife won't blanch at this, is better than Gail. Why wouldn't I be talking about her? Because I like to talk about her. What about you? This week, what do you want to do with it? Preachers, sometimes we like to think that these 30 minutes are so critical, but it's really more important is what you do in these coming days, how you set your life. Like when you get in your car today, if you don't have children, 
Could you be like quiet for like three minutes and try to figure out what do you, what do you think God's saying to you? Where do you want to go? And maybe take three minutes tomorrow and keep thinking about that and asking God for help because I need God's help. How do you want to finish? I'd like to finish well. Let's pray.